0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Viola University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology Biola Viola University.
0: We're here today, just the two of us, to talk about the, the recent book that Sean and his father, Josh McDowell, you may recognize that name, uh, have released update of their best-selling work Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, first published in 1972. I won't, maybe, maybe I won't go down
1: that road, <laughs> but that was actually the year I graduated from high school. I was um, negative four, just to give <laughs> a little context.
0: But to tell, I think our listeners, you know, who were not around in 1972, uh, might be really interested to know sort of what What was it about your dad and his work on college campuses that motivated him to put these two massive volumes together? If you've seen these volumes, it's an enormous amount of data and information that is incredibly valuable. has touched so many people's lives and given them a really nice plausibility structure for their faith. Uh, So what, I mean, this was a ton of work. What
1: motivated him to do this? So he set out. In the university actually at the challenge of a group of christians to disprove christianity so he was actually going to gather the evidence and ultimately maybe compile it into a book showing that christianity is false and the reason for this is he grew up in a small town in michigan deeply troubled background his father was a town alcoholic older sister committed suicide my dad was sexually abused for seven years by someone who worked on the farm. Till he was old enough to slam him against the wall and say, "You touch me again, I'll kill you." Scott, we were sitting around recently as a family, and my sister says, to "My dad, hey, share a funny story, a good memory you have when you were a kid." And he's like, "Kids, I don't have one." Ouch. I mean, just Ouch. and I wept. Yeah. Well, he met a group of Christians in college who had a joy, a love, just a peace about life, and he wanted that, and they told him that it was Jesus Christ, so he thought it was a joke. So he had enough money from a painting business in his lower 20s to travel basically overseas because at this time you couldn't Google or even go to your local library to look at ancient manuscripts, to find some of the archaeological digs, to look at some of the historical evidence that was there. So he goes to Europe and the Middle East to disprove it, And ultimately ends up realizing, my goodness, if I'm honest with myself, this is really true. Now, the evidence got his attention, but when he understood the love of God, that's actually when he became a believer. And to make a long story short, when he became a Christian and God gave him the capacity to forgive his father and the man who abused him, he actually said, that's when I really knew the evidence was true, when I had that changed life. Well, he ended up speaking on college campuses, and he'd speak on the evidence now that he's with Crusade, and people would say things to him. This is like in the 60s. Man, I wish I had that evidence. So he puts it together in a 14-page, like stapled it, and says, like, I'm just going to sell him for a dollar. And they go gangbusters when he speaks because there wasn't Lee Strobel, there wasn't J.P. Morrill, and there wasn't William Lane Craig. Almost nobody was doing this. There just wasn't much in the way of apologetics no, at all. There, there at wasn't. Time. There was like Norm Geisler, C.S. Lewis, John Warwick Fran- Montgomery, Francis Schaeffer was a Francis Schaeffer, but. but nobody was popularizing mm-hmm. this. So he did that, and then he decides I'm going to put this together into a book. For a year, types it himself on a typewriter. And almost no publisher wanted it. Really? Nobody wanted it. Because evidence consists of these really long quotes and documentation. It's not written like a normal kind of story. Well, now every Christian publisher beyond wishes they had. Of course. Because I think it's like 40-some languages, 4 million-plus copies. I mean, just... Unbelievable. I can't go anywhere without somebody telling me that this book helped them save their faith or God used it to draw them to Christ. So really, he didn't write it to prove Christianity's true. He actually wrote it as a result of trying to prove that it was false.
0: Basically, how influential, if you had to summarize the impact of the book, or, the, or both of them, help our listeners get a sense of the impact that that's had.
1: Well, I would I would say a few things. World Magazine dubbed it one of the top, books of the 20th century, all books. Like, you could quibble if it belongs in there or not, but for somebody like World Magazine to say one of the top 40 books is pretty remarkable. One of the things in doing this update is I've had scholars contact me, people like Craig Keener, people like William Lane Craig, people, uh, I mean, people like Mike Lacona, who are now, you know, 50s plus, who when they were starting out in their teenage and college and graduate school year... Had nothing, and scholars like this saying either this was one of the factors that led me to do research. So William Lane Craig says it was really study with that on the resurrection that was a huge piece of motivating him to study this in grad school and beyond. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, that's incredible. Craig Keener, one of the top New Testament scholars in the world, said to me he posted someone Facebook he goes, "Man, this book was so formative." And we quote him a ton. He goes, "I'm just like thrilled to be quoted yeah, in this." Yeah. So I've had dozens of scholars tell me that i can't go anywhere with somebody talking about and they always say i'm sure you've heard this as if i don't want to hear it but every time i hear it scott it's just amazing like god's used my dad a small farmer who had a speech impediment an alcoholic father to write this book it's also been translated i mean 40 languages worldwide the emails i get from people around the world and this updated version is now just being translated into those languages but I don't even know that we could put a, a, a number on it, how influential it's been.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that in, in my lifetime, I'm not, I'm not sure there's been any book that's been more broadly influential in apologetics in the, in the life of the church. Wow. Because, uh, you know, I, you count me among one of those hmm. that, uh, it, you know, re- reading that, although I read it after I came to faith. Uh, I recognized that you know it was you know everything that I had that I had believed really was true and there was good evidence mm-hmm. to support it and it was very plausible to uh, to engage you know at that level. Tell our listeners a little bit because lo- lots lots of things have changed since 1972 Lots of things about the culture, about the church, about the the receptivity to the gospel, a lot of things that are going on today that we're not we're not on the radar in 1972. So, how how's the culture changed since that was first written and how is how is the revision of it
1: kind of taken those things into it? This is a question I've asked my dad a lot to get his perspective cuz he's coming up on 79 and has been doing this 5 decades and a half or so. And he said a few things. He said, it used to be when I started off talking on college campuses and I present evidence for the Bible, evidence for the resurrection, deity Christ, people would say, that's not true. Give me evidence. Prove it. Now it started to change kind of in the 90s with this increased tolerance kind of perspective. You know, that's insensitive. That's hateful. That's bigoted. What right do you have to say that? So there's been a real shift in authority and how people even approach truth. In a sense, from being truth something you discover and submit your life to, to now if I feel it, if I believe it, it's true for me. That's a massive shift that I think has taken place. A second shift is I think how much we see people emotionally hurting in culture today. There was just a report this past week that talked about how loneliness is an epidemic and it's higher among Generation Z, those below many millennials now, maybe like 5 to 20 or 25 roughly. And it's epidemic, depression, loneliness, seeing attempts at suicide. There's a real brokenness in the hearts of people that, again, shapes how they understand the gospel and shapes how they understand truth. The third change would just be the ubiquity of information. So when my father first wrote evidence, what made this book like an instant bestseller was people didn't have access to this information. Well, now there's a ton more apologists and people doing this, which is wonderful. But now, just one click away, you have all this information. So why would something like evidence be valuable? I can think of two reasons. Number one, in a world in which there's endless information and endless voices, I think trust is one of the most important commodities that you can have. This is what Biola has. There's a trust with this institution. It's built over a long period of time. And I think evidence that my father have built trust that he's going to do his homework, do his research. Second, it just saves time. Go ahead and try to find all the research. Exactly. But if you have one resource that saves time, that's the value of, I think, a text like this today.
0: Yeah, somebody's got to sort through all that ubiquitous information. It's a lot and, of and, information. And make sense of it. That's right.
1: Um, and find out what's good and what's not. Maybe our listeners aren't that interested
0: in this, but I certainly am. I want to know who did most of the work in updating it. Well, you
1: know what? Nobody's asked me that question. Seriously, nobody has asked me who did most of the work. Here's here's what it entailed. I got three dozen graduate students, mostly in the Apologetics and MA Philosophy program. I got a student from Liberty and a couple others, and I had them researching. I had them writing. Had them editing. We had 12 leading scholars, people like Craig Baumberg, Michael Kona, going through each chapter, giving us feedback, Michael Brown. So my job was to manage this thing. And time-wise, I mean, nobody put more work into this than, than I did. That's hands down. My dad would say, of course, that's the case. It was probably as much work or maybe more than a dissertation. I wish I had clocked it, how much it took. But, I mean, putting this thing together, coming up with a format, the research behind it, Clearly, my dad did the work in preparing that. And I was regularly going back and forth to him saying, do you like this argument? Would you change this? But kind of the boots on the ground was all these amazing graduate students Mm -hmm. and me just pulling this thing together.
0: That's really helpful about the process because I I would guess that some of our listeners might think that your dad was sort of passing the mantle to you Mm -hmm. with this. Uh, But it sounds like he was pretty significantly involved too. Yeah. And I I sort of... I mean, from knowing him, I'm not sure he's ready to pass the mantle to anybody. Uh, but would that be a fair assessment that he sort
1: of passed the torch to you with this? You know, that's, that, that's another question somebody has not asked me, and I'm glad you asked it. He One of the reasons he wanted to do this update was it had been two decades, like 1999, since this book had been updated. I think that was maybe the third update. Second, because I had gotten my PhD, started to teach at Biola, started a ministry of my own... To have two generations together really gives credit to his ministry. I think it gives credit to the book itself and gives a unique power to it. But is also setting it up for the future that this evidence brand, for lack of a better term, would continue. So my might add as a high control person, he'll totally admit that. But he's also pretty amazing at delegating. If he trusts you and I build up trust with him, he's just – he's like, son, do it. Go for it and just check in. Let me know what's going on and let him weigh into it and give wisdom. So I think the way you phrased it was kind of passing on the mantle. But of course, I mean, his name should be at the top. People associate him with evidence. He's the one who has all the ideas for it and has branded it. But I think coming together made it it a pretty special project.
0: No, that had to be incredibly satisfying for him as a dad to – to do this together. I, mean, I can't think of too many things to be more thrilling mm. for a dad. T- tell us a little bit about why do we have to update these? Because do, have we learned that much more about the reliability of the resurrection? Uh, have we learned that much more about the biblical manuscripts you know, since 90, 1999? I mean, the resurrection's not any more secure
1: today than it was 20 years ago. I take it. So why, why why do we need to update this? I think there's a few reasons why. Number one is since he wrote it in 99, there's been a lot of objections that people have written in professional journal articles, YouTube videos, blog posts that just needed responding to. There's some new issues that came up that were not pressing really in, say, the late 90s. The idea of these Gnostic Gospels was not as pressing. Yeah. The idea that Christianity was based on thanks, these pagans. Thanks, thanks to Dan Brown for that. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. He really did popularize that amongst the internet and other reasons. The idea that Christianity is co- you know, kind of a, a copycat of these pagan mythical religions, that was not pressing. Even the historical Adam in the Old Testament section was not really a debated issue. But today, that's a huge topic that we felt the need to cover. And then the third reason would just be that there is actually considerable new evidence that's been uncovered. And interestingly enough, I, my dad wrote an article two weeks ago in Fox News, and he had been using this phrase when I asked him, I'm like, how does the evidence compare? Not just from 99, but from when you started this to today. And my dad's not one for understatement, just to qualify this. <laughs> he goes, son, it's like there's a tsunami of evidence. I thought, that's a really interesting phrase to use. So we wrote an article together. It was called, There's a Tsunami of Evidence for the Christian Faith. Tell my dad's story. Talk about evidence. It was on Fox News. That article moved evidence that demands a verdict into number 16 of all books on Amazon, second in all Christian books. Now, when people say, People don't care about evidence anymore. They don't care about reason. I'm like, that's pretty good indication. When you have a provocative title, you tell a story, and you point people towards a resource that says, here's how you can know truth. I mean, it just it went viral. So I do think the basic arguments for the resurrection have been laid out for decades. The manuscripts, but there are some recent finds. I mean, actually, even the number of manuscripts has grown substantially. And there's earlier manuscripts, and there's more manuscripts that actually have helped us uncover the original words of Jesus that were written down with even greater security. There's been archeological finds that have been made. So these things don't advance as quickly as the daily news, especially given the president who's in office, who's always saying something provocative, but things are moving more quickly than ever. And this, we probably expanded this. It's probably 70% new material from the last version. So I want people to know that there is a wide range of new evidence that's out there that's really worth considering and knowing for Christians.
0: Is there anything where you've had to kind of go back and reevaluate what was written
1: previously in light of new information? I would say there's a few examples that we found that I pulled out that I went back and re-looked at the context and the statements are like "Ah, I'm not sure that I buy that example. So even on writing the update my dad worked with an entire range of grad students from a different school and these grad students I said every single, on this update every quote, every example, every illustration that's used go back to the original and make sure that it's accurate. So In a book that's 500 pages, you're going to find some. So I found a few quotes that I thought, you know what? You look in context. This is taken out of context. Let's take this out. There was an example example related to prophecy. My dad and I just differed on whether we found it persuasive or not. We pulled it out because it was equivocal. But there's no big finds that we go, oh my goodness, we have to like take this entire argument or this entire chapter out. It was just kind of quibbling with examples, finding better ones, removing some dated ones, find a few mistakes in quotes. And frankly, I mean, you have a book that many pages long. And to be honest with you, Scott, I really felt the weight with this because when this comes out, there's already people going line by line. If they can say, we found 10 mistakes out of 800 pages, they'll try to dismiss it. Yeah. And because how many people in the body of Christ use this, I felt the weight like we got to do everything we can to get it right. So, yes, there's been some things we've yeah. taken out, but I'd say they're more on the fringes. Nothing substantive has been removed. I
0: think this is actually one of the best arguments for the reliability of the New Testament story hmm. because you know the, the apostles and the authors of the New Testament, they had every incentive to get it right because they knew that not not only were people going to be looking to discredit their arguments, they were being flogged and beaten and killed for believing in this, in the narrative of the life of Jesus and the resurrection. And so they, I mean, they they were really powerful incentives at work to make sure that they got every little bit as accurately as they could.
1: This is actually a chapter we added on the fate of the apostles. Did they die as martyrs? Because that was my dissertation. Mm -hmm. I published a 300 page academic book now with Rutledge, but that has not been accessible to people. So we added about a 15 page paper. What's the evidence the apostles died as martyrs? And did they really believe Jesus was risen? That's one of my favorite chapters in this
0: update. Sean, you often hear people say that uh, people get loved into the kingdom, not argued into it. Mm. Um, and therefore, yeah, po- apologetics is helpful, but it sounds like what really turned your dad around was these people who loved him. And when he became, and as you said, when he really got a grasp on what the love of God meant to him, and especially given the, the idea of a loving father and kind of in comparison to his own, uh, how would you, I mean, that's often, I don't think that's meant to to diminish apologetics, but... Maybe some people might say, well, it's just to put it in its proper place.
1: Hmm. Um, how would you respond to that? I think it, it's a false dichotomy to say it's either love or reasoning with people. I think it's both. We're called to love people by giving good reasons amongst other things. I mean, just read the beginning of Acts. The apostles go out and they reason from the scriptures. They reason that they were eyewitnesses. They reason that Jesus has fulfilled prophecy, So they're making the case for this. But in one of the letters to Thessalonians, Paul says, we not only gave you the gospel, we gave you our very own lives. Jesus came in grace and he came in truth. I think it's both. Now, with that said, people are also wired differently. I Think of my friend Jay Warner Wallace, cold case detective. Mm -hmm. He was not loved into the kingdom. (laughs) He didn't care if people loved him or not. He wanted to know if this was true. And he's a little bit of an exception, I think. He thought it was true before he even understood what the gospel meant, because he examined the scriptures mm-hmm. through forensic analysis and concluded that it was true, and then came to believe. I don't think my dad, I mean, God is sovereign, so I can say from human perspective, it was the evidence that got his attention, but it was the kindness and the love of the Lord that drew him. Yeah. So I just look at apologetics as moving kind of, you know, not even boulders necessarily, but just... Things in the path of the way, like potholes, I think it was Walter Martin who famously said, apologetics removes potholes on the path to the way to the kingdom. That's all it is. It's a ministry to help Christians with tough questions, make sense of it, and it helps non-believers who are genuinely seeking and interested in truth have those objections removed and given answers so they can feel like they're placed in a confident faith in Jesus Christ. So I don't ever want to overstate the role of apologetics, because I love it, I probably get too excited about it sometimes. But on the flip side I think people underestimate the role of it and there's just a healthy balance in the middle.
0: Yeah, I can see you know
1: there
0: it's it's I think it's important important to recognize that, you know, we we require not just that our minds be changed, but our hearts be changed. And mm. I think that, you know the, the old adage that the you know the heart You know, the heart doesn't rejoice in what the mind rejects, uh, I think is still true. Now, you also hear, I hear a lot of millennials and Gen Z folks saying, you know, your generation sort of talking to me, you were really, you were much more concerned about whether the gospel was true. Uh, You know, I'm a lot more interested if the gospel is good. Mm. It produces good things. Uh, And so I see, I see all the you know all the horrible things that have been done in the name of religion over the years. And you think, yeah, maybe it's true, but the real question is, is it good? I mean, how, does, how does apologetics
1: try to answer that question? So I think you're right, and it's interesting to hear you say that, because I've said to apologists, I don't know, about a year or so, I've said the primary question people are asking is, not is Christianity true, but is it good? Because if you don't think something is good, you're not going to entertain evidence or facts or reasons that you think that it's true. Well, if you look at a study by Gen Z, this was put out by Barna, and it it came out recently. And they actually said some of the biggest objections people have are, this is Gen Zers have towards the faith. I think Christians and non-Christians, you see the same kinds of questions. Number one is the problem of evil which always has been the big question, it always will be. And that's not really the existence of God, that is, is God really good and loving? Another big one was injustices done in the name of Christ, which is, again, is this good? Another big one was the hypocrisy of Christians. Again, is this good? Now, there are questions of science versus faith and other kind of truth-based questions, but right at the top is this question, is it actually good? And that's where I think relationships are so important. Yes, we have to be ready to give an answer. In fact, in the opening chapter that we add in evidence, we look at these 10 questions that Gen Z and others are asking and just answer them first before we get to the evidence itself. We want people to see that it's good, and then they'll consider the evidence. But I think what helps overcome that is if they know a Christian who believes this, and they're kind, and they're gracious, and they're loving the way they live their life helps realize, gosh, maybe there is something good about Christianity shapes the heart that I think makes the mind uh, to a degree potentially open. Now with that said, one of the things that blew me away about this Gen Z Barna study was that 46% of Gen Zers said they are open for evidence for whether a truth claim, whether religious claim is true or false. 46%, almost half said they're open and looking for degree evidence so we have to address the goodness question like you said but i think evidence is as relevant as it's ever been but the way we present it maybe needs to change
0: yeah we often often challenge our seminary students here at talbot um, that what's true on the individual level is also true at the community level Hmm. and our churches need to be seen as as contributing Good to the flourishing and to the common good of their communities, and we often often ask our students, "If your church closed its doors, how long do you think it would take the community to notice before mm. you were gone?" It's a great question. Other, other than the real estate agents, <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that I think that that's I think an element that complicates the apologetic goal or the apologetic sort of emphasis that the book I think is so is so well equipped to try and to try and do but I think the task is more challenging I think than it
1: was in the 60s and 70s I think that's right and w- one of the change that I brought to it is my dad first wrote this in the early 70s you go through the 80s and early 90s it was very much an us versus them culture and mentality this is the way people wrote my father on the free speech platform, you don't stand up there and have a conversation with somebody. You say things dogmatically and strong and you debate. That's just how communication took place in that culture. Well, that's obviously changed for a number of reasons. So one of the things I went through this manuscript, I said, are we overstating things? Are we saying things in a way that's firm but as gracious as we can towards people that disagree with us? I think my dad's always been gracious, but he's just a fighter because of the pain in his roots. And I think as we came together and said, let's make this case strong, but let's err on the side of being kind, being gracious, not overstating our case, that's one of the big changes of how church needs to be done, conversations need to be had, and I think you see reflected in this book as well.
0: Well, if you, don't, if you don't have your copy of evidence that demands a verdict and more evidence that demands a verdict— the newest updated edition. Uh, let me tell you, it is still the standard reference work on Christian apologetics today. Uh, you know, you can say what you want about the plethora of materials that that work that the original work in the '70s spawned, which is pretty significant. And if that, and if if, if that by itself were the only impact of it, it would still be off the charts. Yeah. But for, for all of you who care about the truth of your faith and want to have a, a really well-grounded ability to be able to present, present the, the reasons for the hope that's within you, as, as Peter described in 1 Peter 3, you, can, you just can't find a better resource than uh, this updated version of evidence that demands a verdict. So, this is, this, uh, it's been great just to, to talk about this together, and I would, I would so encourage all of our listeners, this is, this is a work that's got to be on your shelf. Uh, granted, it probably doesn't fit under the heading of bedtime reading, <laughs> uh, but it is, it's, just an, it's an indispensable resource. And kudos to you, Sean, and to your dad, and to your, to the team of folks who uh, put all this together, a yeoman's work that's going to serve the church and the kingdom for a lot of years to come.
1: Well, thanks, Scott. You really hit on it that it was, was a team effort.
0: This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation between Sean and me, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. And thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.